Hello, friends. Welcome back. Hit Factory here. Just Aaron on this side today, but fear not. I have a wonderful guest with me. Uh, he's a film writer and editor at Film Inquiry and on the wonderful podcast Optimism Vaccine from Los Angeles. It's Jake Trapila. Jake, welcome to Hit Factory. Hey, Aaron, thank you so much. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, Jake, today we're going to be talking about a movie I, I, I don't really think needs much of an introduction. It's uh, one of sort of the most widely known and acclaimed today of uh, the works of Joel and Ethan Cohen. Endlessly quoted, I have never met a person who can't uh, and who won't, when prompted, give me at least a handful of their favorite lines from this film. Today we're talking about the 1998 movie, The Big Lebowski. Wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. You know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Employed? He likes sex, Mr. Lebowski. Is this your only ID? You got the wrong guy. I'm the dude. Your name's Lebowski, Lebowski. Jeff Lebowski, the other Lebowski, the millionaire. I received this ransom note this morning. This is a bummer, man. They want you to take the money and act his courier. What the hell is this? My dirty undies, dude. The whites. Let's take that hell. Why should we settle for 20 grand when we can keep the entire million? I know you're mixed up in all this. Playing one side against the other in bed with everybody. Blow them. Huh? Fabulous stuff. What? Who's sitting on a million dollars? We want some money. <laughs> sitting in the trunk of our car. Where's my damn money? Say, dude, where is your car? And I got to kick it off, Jake, and just ask you, uh, uh, this is a tee up of a question, but is this the funniest movie ever made? It's either this or Dr. Strangelove for me. I <laughs> Two reliable comedies I can fall back on anytime that not only get funnier with each viewing, but I pick up more and more things, and those things in turn end up being funnier as a result. It's it's a it's such a and I won't I, I, I fear you might ask this question. I won't necessarily go to bat for it as the best Coen Brothers movie, but it might be my personal favorite. It's the one I go back to the most. It's the one I have the most fun with. I I know all the quotes. It's it's uh it's a treasure. It's a delight. It's it's fantastic. My love for this film has uh, grown and evolved steadily over the years. I was confounded by this movie when I first came to it. Uh, I think maybe for folks of our generation, my first uh, introduction to it was definitely on cable. I think it was on Comedy Central quite mm -hmm. often. Um, maybe like TBS or TNT every so often as well. Uh, which, by the way, I, this film has, I think, maybe one of the most famous cable edits of all time uh, in Walter Sobchak's uh, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. Yeah. That was the version I got first and foremost. That was the one that uh, compelled me to keep watching it because I found those edits and those, you know, <laughs> little asides like that just as interesting as the actual kind of text of the film, which uh, is Byzantine to say the least. And uh, I was very confused by it. I saw it in chunks at first. This is not necessarily a movie that you can walk into halfway through and pick up on all the particularities. Mm -hmm. It's definitely one that is very deliberately uh, kind of labyrinthine and confusing and, and meandering. 
Yeah. Um, I first saw this film, uh, by the way, that going back to that TV edit real quick, it's either this or Die Hard 2 that has the, the most famous uh, TV edit that has a uh, yippee Mr. Falcon, which is uh, Falcon. not even not even in Bruce Willis's voice. But um, <laughs> when I was uh, yeah, so when I was 16, I started working at a movie theater. And because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a student in high school. I lived at home. I spent all of my money on uh, movies. I would just go to, you know, the local Best Buy or Barnes Noble whenever there's a sale. And I would just stack up and I would get recommendations from friends. And everyone just kept telling me, oh, you got to see The Big Lebowski, The Big Lebowski. So I got it at uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, I got the DVD. I went home and I watched it. And I I would say I was kind of like you. I, I had this very confounding reaction to it. Um, I enjoyed all of the broader, funnier stuff with like John Goodman, which still just plays beautifully. And, you know, I loved every time he said, uh, shut the fuck up, Donnie. And uh, or the bit <laughs> in uh, Jackie Treehorn's uh, pad with the notepad was unbelievable. Killed. The best sight gag in any movie ever. Um, but yeah, I was <laughs> otherwise I just didn't quite get it. And I um, I had only previously seen Fargo as uh, my first Coen Brothers film, and I loved it. Um, and then about a year or so later, the trailer for No Country for Old Men came out and I was like, oh, that's the Coen Brothers, too. So I went and I kind of did a deep dive in a lot of their films and I revisited Lebowski and I I found myself liking it more and more. And then, yeah, as I've grown, it's just it's one that you can come back to and discover new things. And it's also just it, my perception of it has just changed so much over the years. But I really, really think if you nail it all down, every single moment in it is just absolutely brilliant and a perfect example of what the Coen brothers do best. I completely agree with you. And, you know, upon this rewatch, I actually watched it twice in the last week in preparation for uh, for today's conversation. But I hadn't seen it in a little while. I remembered enjoying it more than I had when I was a teenager. I think I came to it literally around the exact same time as you. I think it was sort of uh, around the year or so before No Country for Old Men was in theaters when mm -hmm. I started kind of deep diving on Coen Brothers. And like you, worked at a Best Buy in high school and uh, spent all my money there too and and picked up all these DVDs. So so picked up this one. While, while I found it entertaining, like you said, kind of like the broad strokes of the comedy, Peter Stormar and Flea and the gang, like their German accents and, and the, the Nihilist gang with the, mm -hmm. the ferret, aka Marmot, <laughs> was always very funny to me. I think it just funny accents will get me every single time. Yeah. But I, I, I left it kind of feeling a little cold. It, it was one that I, I could appreciate and, and see the humor in, but didn't necessarily mm -hmm. see anything greater to it and, and bigger thematically the way that I did when I checked out stuff like Blood Simple or, uh, or Fargo, and especially some of their early 90s stuff like Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, which were like immediate, I, I love these kind of flicks for me. Yeah, I think now I see that this film is actually one that is just as expertly constructed. And there is quite uh, quite a bit of that sort of uh, classic Cohen texture to it. A lot of their very classic themes at play here uh, and really just like one of the most like refined and like perfect encapsulations of all the things that they do well in one movie. I love them so much because they have such a such a graceful command on almost everything they touch. And I love that they also are, act as their own editors, as Roderick Janes. And uh, they really have this fantastic rhythm 
uh, that especially in this film, just one scene flows beautifully into the next one. And it's like set piece after set piece that this film is famous for. But um, wanted to just circle back real quick. I'm so glad you mentioned the nihilists and the marmot because uh, when I rewatch this film, I find it funnier on new levels. So you can watch it for the first time. And that scene is just funny in itself where they break into the dude's bathroom. They <laughs> smash all his stuff. They throw the marmot in the tub. Um, but what was struck me as really funny this time is that's not the funny part. The funny part is after they terrorize him, they leave and flea is kind enough to turn the light off so that he can enjoy his bath time atmosphere that he had been reveling in before they even showed up. So, yes. so just little details like that sing loudly with every rewatch and it's, it's fantastic. It's golden. It's fantastic. It's so pitch perfect. And in that scene too, you know, like just the, the matter of factness with which Stormar unleashes the ferret and just plops it right into the water. Like as if they've done this a million times before, like this is our intimidation tactic the same way we would, you know, uh, you know, release the hounds on you and have them like bark at you and, and you know, call out a kill command or something. And just like, I, I don't know, it, it's always stuck with me. And of course, it's, you know, everything in this movie is quotable. We're going to have to, I think, fight against the impulse to maybe just oh, yeah. quote it at each other for the next two hours. But just the phrase with like the, the confirmation afterward of we believe in Nassim Lebowski. Yeah, Nassim Lebowski. Like, is so funny to me. It's it's uh, it's just perfect. Yeah, they're, they're they w- the way they work with language is especially great. And I think one of the scenes that sums up why this movie is so funny to me. It, it happens late in the film. It's the mortuary scene, uh, and the guy playing the mortician, he's fantastic. Uh, just the perfect kind of deadpan against Walter and the dude. And the way he just says specific phrases like, well, we must transmit the remains to you in the receptacle. And that's our most modestly priced receptacle. And thing, things <laughs> like that are really great. And also um, a, a laugh that hit me this time is when he hands them the bill. <laughs> he says, I assume this will be credit card. <laughs> and that like, just was like just a, a slight dig at the two guys. Like, you know, they're not going to pay this off right away. Um, but yeah, the, the just the Coens in language is one of their many strengths. I, I think I mentioned this anecdote on the episode that we uh, did with our friend Bill Ryan covering both Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. But Peter Stormar talks about working on Fargo with the Coen brothers. And there's a line uh, that he delivers where he's insistent on going to Pancake's house uh, to Steve Buscemi over and over again. He really wants to go to the Pancake's house. And I guess Stormar says that he kept hitting it as Pancake House because that's what it would be called. And uh, the Coens, you know, kind of had to pull him aside after multiple takes and and just say, what the fuck are you doing? It's it's Pancake's House. Hit the S. <laughs> like, it's written that way on purpose. Like, say the line the way it's written. It's all there on purpose. Um, and so they're very deliberate about the way that they utilize language and with their actors to want them to to be able to communicate like precisely what is there in the dialogue on the page. Yeah. Oh yeah. Especially every time it, the dude says dude or man, all of those are, it's, it's amazing to just know that all of those are scripted. I think just in my own research that I think human paraquat is like the only unscripted line in this film, but otherwise <laughs> everything they have uh, nailed down to a T and like, even in Fargo, I think I read that when, um, William H. Macy is rehearsing the 911 call. All of those like little stammers that he's doing, every single one of those is scripted. 
Like he's he's just hitting everything in this in how how they've written it. It's not there's not any much room for improvisation in the film. Um, and which is funny because you think oh a comedy film you get all these legends together you might there might be some gentle riffing, but I think that's also just a testament to the strength of the Coens is that no this is their vision. Everything in it is, you know, how they saw it out. And it's, it's, uh, you know, you can have, you can get some good actors and just have them be stuck in riff city hell, as I call it, where, you know, they can't put a, put a scene together without arguing. But yeah, everything is, uh, is just so, it's so meticulous just to watch it unfold. But, uh, that, that, you know, lends itself to their brilliance. Yeah. And I think kind of the rhythmic quality, the pacing that they're able to achieve with their writing, uh, is something that, can yeah. feel very naturalistic and, and can feel sort of impromptu when you're watching it on the screen. But it's it's clear that it's done uh, with a great deal of consideration and thought behind it. I think about uh, the scene where uh, the dude is talking about how Bunny probably kidnapped herself and, and referencing uh, Lennon. And Donnie, Steve Buscemi's <laughs> character, misinterprets it as as being John Lennon rather than Vladimir Lennon. Yeah. Um, and keeps saying, I am the walrus. And the way that he keeps insisting, I am the walrus, I am the walrus, happens at these like perfectly syncopated kind of moments where there's a breath uh, in between John Goodman and Jeff Bridges. And it's something that like you could not replicate unless it was like instructionally there for you already written down. Yeah, that's a, and that's, that's a, such a fantastic point. Absolutely. When, when, and when John Goodman finally cracks at him, uh, is also just, just John Goodman. Uh, if ever there was like a performance to, to just discredit the Oscars for that year, not even be nominated, <laughs> he yeah. is a, a powerhouse and I just, I, he's, he's so compelling to watch, but just also a lot of fun, you know, a, a big guy getting angry. The Coen brothers understand that's a funny thing. And he, he really just sings beautifully in this. I, I love anytime he like, pulls Vietnam out of nowhere to reference it when he's, whenever he's talking <laughs> to Smokey or Larry Sellers, have you heard of Vietnam son? It's, you know, we can't turn this into a quote fest, but yeah, John Goodman, I, I like just the might he puts into his performance and it, it's such a such a powerhouse but just also something so wonderfully realized yeah for my money I, john goodman is given like three at least three maybe even four or five uh, oscar caliber performances in coen brothers movies and the fact that he's uh never received an uh, uh, academy award for his work much less been nominated for anything uh yeah. as uh, i even have it in my notes too jake I, I literally have what you said which is uh it's a national travesty and it should be uh, a way of discrediting any sort of airs of prestige the academy ever puts on and anything that it ever uh tries to use to, to validate itself mm -hmm. the man is perfect in this movie he is uh every single note every single shout every single kind of like minor uh you know throaty kind of comment calmer than you are kind of uh <laughs> statement is is just perfect and and it gets a laugh a everything he says is funny it's also great just because he he thinks everything he's doing he's he's entitled to it and it's just the justification between all of his actions like he was a nami you know he's he's owed all this there's <laughs> am i the only one who gives a shit about the rules there's he's walking in this world where you, you know the, you can't just you can't go against the natural law and order of things and if you do he's gonna pull out a gun and put you back in your place uh, uh, yeah again just uh, so like uh, with threats of violence around the corner in every scene and all the imitate intimidation. Um, yeah. Goodman, Walter Sobchak is just maybe the Coen brothers greatest creation. 
Uh, and this is a film with with so many just memorable characters that only really pop up for a scene or two. Um, like Jesus, his introduction is also quite stunning. He gets the the slow motion uh, intro, licking the bowling ball, his little dance, the <laughs> the 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 one coke nail against a ring, a hand with all the rings. Uh, the yeah, that's that's also great. And he's only really in one other scene in the movie, but everyone remembers Jesus in the Big Lebowski. This was a valued rug. <clears throat> this was a. Uh... Yeah, man, it really tied the room together. So this was a value, dog. Yeah. It tied the room together, dude? My rug. Were you listening to the dude's story, Donnie? Walter. Were you listening to the dude's story? I was bowling. So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie. You're like a child who wanders into Walter, the middle of a movie and wants what, to know. Walter, what's the point, man? There's no reason. Here's my point, dude. There's no fucking reason why these Yeah, two... Walter, what's your point? Huh? Walter, what is the point? Look, we all know who is at fault here. What the fuck are you talking about? Huh? No, what the fuck are you? I'm not. We're talking about unchecked aggression here. What the dude. fuck is he talking my about? My rug. Forget Look, it, Donnie. You're Walter, out of your element. Walter, the Chinaman who peed on my rug. I can't go give him a bill. So what the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? The Chinaman is not the issue here, dude. I'm talking about drawing a line in the sand, dude. Across this line, you do not. Also, dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. Walter, this isn't a guy who built the railroads here. This is a guy. What the fuck are you Walter, he peed on my rug. He peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. Dude, the Chinaman is not the issue here. So who, who? Jeff Lebowski, the other Jeffrey Lebowski, the millionaire. That's fucking interesting, man. That's fucking interesting. Plus, he has the wealth, obviously, and the resources, uh, so that there's no reason, there's no fucking reason why his wife should go out and owe money all over town, and then they come, and they pee on your fucking rug. Am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? Yeah, but... Okay, then. <clears throat> that rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. You know, this is the fucking guy. I could find this fucking Lebowski guy. His name is Lebowski? That's your name, dude. This is the guy who should compensate me for the fucking rug. His wife goes out and owes money all over town and they pee on my rug? They pee on your fucking rug? They peed on my fucking rug. That's right, dude. They peed on your fucking rug. They're capacity to write these just like brilliant compelling and memorable characters that only really show up for minutes at a time in this film uh mm -hmm. is is something to behold and we will definitely get into like the the huge bench of incredible actors that bring this thing to life um yep. but i do want to start i think talking a little bit about just sort of the origins of the big lebowski some of it i think at this point is tedium it's all well documented and, and we won't spend too much time on it but of course uh worth mentioning just sort of the the impetus for the film and and for some of the characters in here because uh it is interesting so i guess this film is written uh around the same time as barton fink is being constructed um, which is funny because Barton Fink uh, itself was one that was being uh, constructed and written as sort of a, a detour and a distraction from Miller's Crossing. And uh, yeah. I think it just kind of, you know, again, a testament to the way the Coens work and just how many brilliant ideas they have in their head at any given time that 
they have all of these I- incredible iconic movies that they're able to, you know, throw 60, 70 pages of a script together for let's sit for a little while and, and, you know, gather a little bit of moss and then come back to it and then put something out. That's so wonderful. Uh, but I guess at the time that they are prepared to make the movie, Goodman is obviously uh, a little distracted with Roseanne, which is where mm-hmm. he is getting some of his awards attention <laughs> at the Emmys. Um, and Bridges is doing a couple other things, including a, a Walter Hill picture, I think, at the time that, that they're ready to shoot. Uh, so the Coens instead, of course, you know, after uh, Barton Fink are going to do Hudsucker Proxy and then they're going to do Fargo. And Fargo, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is up to that point really their their biggest, most populist kind of success huge, huge Oscar contender. Yeah. Um, I, I did not know a single person in and around that time. You know, even as a child, I knew about the movie. I knew adults were watching the movie. I knew people were really, really into Fargo. And I'm always so impressed with the Coen's kind of uh, impulse to take a huge success like that and then go just so profoundly weird afterward. This is kind of the the first time they'll do it in their career, but I think about uh, Burn After Reading, After No Country for Old Men, which I don't yes. think is necessarily on the same of the same caliber as The Big Lebowski, but I do think is is largely unheralded as a uh, great Coen Brothers comedy. I think it's it was it's much better than you would have believed upon its initial reception, and I'm glad that it's been sort of reclaimed by our kind of generation of movie lovers. Uh, and then, of course, I think about like. It's it's different and distinct, but something like Inside Lewin Davis happening mm-hmm. on the the heels of uh, True Grit as well, which Lewin Davis I, I think is I, I maybe I'll ruffle some feathers here, but I think it's their last truly great film, their last like vital and essential movie. Wow, yeah, no, I um, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, no in, Inside Lewin Davis is you know that is an incredible uh, picture. I do love. Um, I guess I don't say I love all of it, but I do love quite a great deal of the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Again, sure. with anthologies, those are naturally uneven. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, this, those are even just the title characters section in that film uh, hits a lot of high notes. Like I prefer that over something like Hail Caesar, um, which is uh, which is a lesser Cohen for me. But yeah. Um, yeah, no Fargo. Even just growing up in the '90s, um, I I kind of remembered the phenomenon that Fargo was and. I was always a fan of watching like uh, the AFI's top 100 movie moments or top 50 heroes and villains. And um, Mm -hmm. Marge ranks highly in Fargo and uh, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Fargo is great. There's a wood chipper and a kidnapping and it's based on a true story. And and uh, yeah, I saw Fargo and it just like totally knocked my socks off. I'm like, oh, wow, these guys are like the real deal. This is around the time, you know, early teens, I was starting to get into like cinephilia and like, I would ask my parents for recommendations and like my would see the Godfather and apocalypse now. And I'll, I would start watching all these seventies movies. And then, yeah, the Coens were really, they really shined in the nineties and yeah, to, to take their biggest hit and their, yeah, like you said, their most populous hit at the time and then followed up with this, this little odd uh, Raymond Chandler-esque <laughs> film about a, an aimless stoner <laughs> getting caught in a, a kidnapping plot that involves a severed toe and uh, nihilists and a, a porn producer. It's, uh, it's really a, a wild swing, but it's one that they, uh, they land uh, beautifully. And uh, yeah, I, I, it's just also, you know, part of their, you know, 
part of the the charm of the Coen brothers is that, yeah, they have these great ideas that they're also fully realized. Like you watch it and like you, this is the work. This is, you know, to hate to pull this word out, but this is the work of genuine auteurs. This is their <laughs> vision. They see it through to the end. They they're 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 guiding everything. And it's such a it's so satisfying just to watch it all come together because when they're good, they are really damn good. And, you know, it's always compelling uh, learning about and, and kind of understanding the sort of patchwork inspirations that lead to something great like this. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there are some some real life influences here uh, that the Coen brothers are are pulling in. Uh, the dude himself, uh, Jeffrey Lebowski, is inspired by a handful of people. One of them is a man named Jeff Dowd, who's an American mm-hmm. film producer uh, and former political activist that the Coen brothers met while they were trying to find distribution for Blood Simple. Uh, and Dowd had, like the dude of uh, The Big Lebowski, been a part of the Seattle Seven. He was a big uh, fan of a Caucasian, white Russians. Uh, and he himself also referred to himself as the dude. Dowd, dude. I guess it makes sense. Nice. Uh, but there's also a, another gentleman named Peter Exline, I guess, who was like a friend of the Coens, uh, who would frequently kind of dazzle them with these silly kind of uh strange stories i think the tale of finding homework stuck in one of the seats of a a stolen car came from them and uh, i I think the coens were so kind of smitten with these sort of strange kooky tales that felt to them like real world uh, exemplifications of the kind of stuff that the author raymond chandler as you mentioned uh, Mm -hmm. jake would would play around with in his crime fiction And I I guess that's a good place to kind of focus in on here as well, which is that this story uh, is, uh, among a a number of other things, probably most indebted to the the fiction of Raymond Chandler and especially uh, its adaptation by Robert Altman in his 1973 film, The Long Goodbye. Yeah, I watched uh, The Long Goodbye for this podcast. And right after I watched The Big Lebowski, um, kind of surprised at how much uh, The Big Lebowski owed to that film. you know, not just Marty Augustine, who is uh, he's on Shabbos uh, when he's pulled out of bed and has to confront uh, Elliot Gould. Um, yep. But also he he dresses just as like just like a Jackie Treehorn. And it's got that really, really great. Gould gives such a great, like aimless performance a la Jeff Bridges as the dude. It's kind of like yep. things are just sort of happening around him as opposed to him being the the cause of them or, or really investigating them. He's just sort of just this fixture in the middle of uh, all the madness. But um, yeah, the the long goodbye also, I would not uh, necessarily go to bat for as the best Altman film, but I would probably say it's my favorite of, that, of his as well. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a terrific film. I also happened to watch it uh, in in preparation. I think we were watching it pretty much at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> talking to each other about Lebowski <laughs> and and Chandler. But um, yeah, Gold's performance in it. Uh, there's so much there that you can see the Coen brothers kind of drafting into their script. Uh, there's another phenomenal uh, part that uh, I caught that you also mentioned to me where. Uh, Gould is being questioned by some detectives and on his uh, mantle on like a bookshelf, he's got a bowling pin and sort of a gold emblazoned like trophy in the shape of a bowling shoe. <laughs> and the the detective asks him, what is this? And and Gould's kind of, you know, kitschy, sarcastic response is it's baby shoes. Um, <laughs> and and it, it it reminds me a little bit of the uh, the line when the uh the rug peers break in at the beginning and he Mm -hmm. asks him what's this when he holds up the bowling ball and the dude says obviously you're not a golfer (laughs) 
Uh, it's also the Big Lebowski is great to revisit just if you want to pay attention to how much damage is inflicted on the dude's life and his belongings. <laughs> like when Jacob from Lost grabs him and rushes him into the bathroom, uh, the bag that is carrying his bowling ball smashes the door frame uh, in a quick and subtle shot. And then he drops mm-hmm. the bowling ball on the tile of the bathroom floor, cracks it. Uh, you know, his car is smashed up and stolen and set on fire. Um, I also noticed this because I always wondered when I watched the film, like, why is his toilet water so milky? And uh, he had just come from the Ralphs where he bought the half and half. And yep. I didn't notice until now that when he's being thrown into the toilet, he's holding up the bag that is carrying the carton of half and half and it explodes <laughs> on the toilet seat before he's dunked in the water. Um, also great in that scene when uh, he's trying to convince them they have the wrong Lebowski. He says, do you see a wedding ring on this finger? And he holds up his right hand, not his left. Just a, the, mm-hmm. that little particular detail is, is something that also stood out to me. Um, but yeah, the, the, the baby shoe comment and the reaction and the long goodbye is, is maybe one of my fun, my favorite, like reactions to something anybody has said in a film ever. And also in the long goodbye, the, the film kind of kicks off with a sort of aimless 3am sojourn to the grocery store to purchase cat food for, uh, for Elliot Gould's cat. Uh, and this film opens, uh, in a very similar fashion with him perusing the aisles of the grocery store in order to buy, uh, the ingredient that he needs to make his beloved Caucasians, uh, and that <laughs> that visual gag of him hitting the toilet and the half and half spewing everywhere is <laughs> is so funny to me. There's there's and there's so many of those in the movie. You know, like I said, it, we're we're gonna digress a lot into just these moments, but the stuff in in Lebowski's apartment, like when when the rug peers come back later on, is when we find out that they are uh, kind of the muscle for Ben Gazzara's Jackie Treehorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lebowski and, and the dude is uh, putting up sort of the he's he's nailing this board into the floor with about a million nails so that he can set a, a chair against it uh, underneath the doorknob, you know, so that it would be a, a means by which to kind of keep people from just breaking in or opening the door. And then the rug peers open the door out instead of in and the chair immediately <laughs> falls to the ground is just like a thrilling, like laugh out loud kind of moment. The That's the second best sight gag in the movie for me. Um, also, it sets up a joke later when he finally returns to his apartment after being drugged and thrown out of the police station. Uh, his apartment is in shambles and he walks in and then he trips and he turns around and sees that he tripped on the the two by four that he had furiously nailed into the floor the night before. Um, just little setups like that also. And then I mentioned the uh, I mean, we got I got to just you know devote some time to that. The 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 shading on the uh, the treehorn notepad. He's he Please. goes to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He goes to uh, Jackie Treehorn. Well, first, I got to say, like, just the going into the rhythm of the film, like we get uh, they go to see Larry Sellers. They smash up the car, you know, don't, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass. They, then they get the in and out, then it cuts to him nailing the two by four. Uh, then the tree horn thugs both come back. Also a detail I love, they've switched shirts, uh, for some reason. Um, they're, <laughs> yeah. wearing, they're both wearing each other's clothes from the uh, beginning of the film. Then it just hard cuts to this woman in a void. And we see that she's on a trampoline on the beach and then, uh, ben Gazzara walks up out of the shadows and he has this really glorious introduction. Um, and then he's talking with the dude and he excuses himself to go use the phone. And 
right now, like the dude has sort of been this follower the whole film. He's just kind of going where he's told. This is like the first time and really the last time where his detective instincts kick in. Like he he hones in on Treehorn writing the note and he's like, oh, this this could get me what I need. Treehorn excuses himself. He's, you know, surreptitiously runs over, starts shading the the notepad. And it's just an outline of a guy with a giant erection that Treehorn had drawn. <laughs> and, and also just like the way the dude pauses and stares at it. And he gives like a little one final brush stroke as if it's going to reveal anything else. Uh, <laughs> like he's missed but, something. Yeah, like, yeah, like he missed something. But he what's funny that also sets up. He grabs that, takes it back, stuffs it into his pocket. Later, when the police search him, they find that he has a wallet with just a Ralph's card and then that same shading of the drawing in his pocket <laughs> when he's interrogated later on. Uh, but yeah, that 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 whole that whole setup and payoff, because like the dude um, and we should also discuss how a lot of what he says, he's just kind of parroting what he has heard earlier in the film. And that's just something yep. that carries on. But like yeah, the him him investigating the treehorn notepad is like just the first moment where he feels like he can he can be useful and do something. And then it just it backfires in the most glorious way. Yeah. And there's so much of that in the movie, uh, uh, you know, very reminiscent of of Altman's film where we go along with the character who kind of makes these assumptions in this. Of course, the dude is uh, the furthest thing from like a, a gumshoe or a, a you know private eye the way that uh, that Philip Marlowe is in in The Long Goodbye. Uh, but they're both equally wrong about so many things that they make assumptions about. Uh, they are very kind of complacent. They are sort of passive uh, in all of the action around them. And basically everything is informed by everybody always being, or rather them being sort of one step behind the actual events playing out. There are so many funny interstitial moments in the film, like the one that you're talking about where mm. You know, he he returns home and the place is trashed and he trips over the board that he had like kind of been hammering down. Uh, there's also a great one where he's leaving mods uh, like penthouse and being driven by her like very jovial, like New Yorker kind of driver back to his place who then points out that they're being followed by a guy in a Volkswagen who will later mm -hmm. find is uh, a private investigator himself played by the great John Polito, uh, a Coen Brothers regular. Yes. Uh, and then he's grabbed by another driver <laughs> and dragged just across the street into yet another car, which is the limo for uh, the big Lebowski himself, David Huddleston, with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. Uh, and, and just those kinds of moments where there's this like just cyclone of plot all catching up with one another and kind of spinning out where three different people with three different motivations are all kind of vying for the attention of the dude and, and pulling him into their orbit for some sort of necessity uh, is like the first couple times you watch it so confounding. And then when you sort of lean back a little bit and just kind of let it carry you, you realize sort of how smart it is and how kind of masterfully it's all being handled. You're being taken on this ride and all of it is inconsequential uh, and for the most part, you know, like none of this yeah. stuff really matters. Everything is sort of like, you know, based upon assumptions that are incorrect. And at the end of it, we still get a fulfilling and satisfying story. Just watching this guy kind of idly be taken by the waves. Yeah. And that's a that's a note I have just as how this is sort of a blip in the dude's life that just plays out over the course of a week. Um, like, you know, he's we open he's content 
you know, kind of aimless, but otherwise has no worries in life. And then the, the one like sacred item of comfort in his, in his, that he owns is, is soiled. And that's what sends him <laughs> on this journey. And then, yeah, it, it just, it spins into so many different directions, but yeah, at the end of the film, he just, he just carries on with the bowling competition. And, uh, you know, as he says, the dude abides, which is not really, it, it, which is a, a phrase that he stole from the big Lebowski earlier in the film when he says, I will not abide another toe. And that's, that's something that the dude just sort of heard and like, he liked it enough to, to share it. And as his own little credo that he gives to the stranger. But, um, yeah, the, uh, that, that whole grabbing him out of the car and him, Hey, there's a beverage here, man. And him being thrown in, um, <laughs> and that leads into the toe conversation at the diner, which is, uh, uh, should we discuss the, the restoration of this film and, uh, that went into it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there, there's a, you know, the, the reason that this film exists and that we are able to see it in such pristine quality today is, is thanks to really one man and, uh, and some of his technology, Mortimer Young, right? Mortimer Young, the of course of, of forever young film preservation and his patented sonic jiggle bath technology, <laughs> uh, which was able to restore a, a pretty pristine Italian print of the film. Hello, I'm Mortimer Young of Forever Young Film Preservation. This evening's title, The Grand Lebowski, is one of our greatest success stories. Prints of the film had been languishing in a state of almost criminal neglect. We, we jest, of course, but uh, but earlier we mentioned, I think, <laughs> Jake, that we both came to this movie uh, in its DVD format. And uh, just as sort of strange, bizarre and confounding as the film itself was mm -hmm. this DVD introduction uh, where uh, we're introduced to kind of a, a, a false background of a restored print of this movie. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so like they he used his technology as you said to restore what looked like a, a beat up uh you know, needed color correction just a desperate in need of saving print. And uh once that was restored, they had only the original audio track, I believe it was in Spanish um or or another language. Uh so all they had to do was just get the uh, original actors to come in and redub all of their lines in the film. But they couldn't get Goodman, so they hired a master impressionist David Fry to do all of uh, Goodwin's dialogue is uh, Walter Sobchak. And that's why mm -hmm. now we see the big, the big Lebowski that we know and see is the, the final result of uh, all of that hard work and effort paid off. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, we love the film preservationists out there. Mortimer Young, I, I mean, should be in there in the conversation alongside the Martin Scorsese's of the world for just preserving and, and keeping <laughs> the art of cinema intact for future generations. Yeah. Uh, but but this I guess this clip you know is sometimes screened ahead of uh, sort of like revival and and rep screenings of the Big Lebowski. I know that it was uh, done for a restoration of Blood Simple as well. Um, they they did another one of these Forever Young film preservation clips with our friend Mortimer. Uh, but it's very funny, and it, it's still to this day, I refer to this movie the way Mortimer Young does, which is the grand Lebowski as opposed to the big Lebowski. That I should, I should adopt that trait and just start calling it the same. And people in the know would know exactly what we're talking about. Other people. What, what do you, what the, the big Lebowski? No, no, it's the grand Lebowski. 
thanks the to Grand Mr. Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> he's well, he's taking it from the original Italian uh, title as well, mm. right? So it's it's a a more perfect uh, translation than would be the Big Lebowski, of course. <laughs> it's like it just reminds me of Le Grand Illusion or something like that. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about. I mean, how good is this fucking cast? You know, we've already mentioned a couple of them. Goodman is a heavy hitter. Bridges, yeah. I, I think, you know, is one that it, it seems so effortless when he does this that you kind of uh, miss just how much he's doing. And and you know, we were talking about how kind of perfect and precise the language that the Coens use in the script is. I, I'm not sure if you've seen the script or not, but can you confirm how many of his stutters and uhs and ums are actually written into his dialogue? I I haven't seen the script, but like I can I can say I think I've read that like the word man does appear 160 times or something like that in the script. <laughs> he he punctuates it at the end of every every like this is a private residence, man, and uh, so yeah, and and it's also the way you described uh, Bridges' performance. I have this exact note too: is that he does not look like he's acting. It's it's such a wonderfully naturalistic, but it, like performance that he gives. Um, but one that's just yeah, also just so beautifully rendered and under the the Cohen's guiding hand that Bridges, like I think you know, up there with with uh, with Goodman. This is maybe his best performance in anything. It's uh, it's certainly my favorite, but yeah, it's uh, it's really really quite quite incredible what he does. Yeah, and much hay has been made uh, of the fact that a lot of what the dude wears in this movie is stuff yeah. directly from Bridges' own closet. Um, he he worked with the costuming department to pick out some stuff that he thought might jive with the character, and uh, he's correct. It all looks very much like the kind of stuff that maybe a uh, you know like an, an aging militant leftist like hippie uh might be wearing you know and just kind of like burning out in the early 90s you know token up and you know throwing on his pajama pants and his cardigans uh it's a great look it's a great vibe and it feels like a holy holy embodied character yeah i love the jelly sandals those are probably my favorite touch um i need those i need the the jelly sandals (laughs) we need to get ourselves a pair after this is over (laughs) yeah absolutely but um yeah no the the costuming is great um I love so yeah Donnie I love um it's kind of great that the Cohen's sort of just written him in as a punchline to everything that John Goodman says and does um but he's also great because he kind of works as his third observer between the action of the two um like you know you forget he's there half the time but uh, I, I like that we get his perspective every now and then um like we cut to him in the uh the car outside when Walter is smashing up the Corvette uh, and then, of course, we get the, uh, you know, the lengthy eulogy where uh, Walter sort of compares his uh, his life to that of uh, Vietnam and then throws, <laughs> scatters the ashes into the dude's face. Um, but but yeah, Busami's great. Um, I uh, Julianne Moore uh, is is dynamite. She, I love superb. Yeah. I love the way she says thorough and he's a good man and thorough. Um, <laughs> Philip, Philip, and also, and just, just a, you know, a shining star anytime he's on screen. Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, the way he reacts to, uh, Bunny offering to blow the dude for a thousand dollars, just <laughs> that holding back laughter, that big smile, the, <laughs> he's allowed that, oh, Bunny about himself. Uh, he, he, such a small part. And I, I, re- I wish he had worked with the Coens one more time. He, it, fabulous. He's just fabulous. 
Yeah, he followed us here. When did he start following? In the limo, you son of a bitch. No hey, argument. Hey, hey, careful, man. There's a beverage here, huh? Start talking and talk fast, you lousy bum. We've been frantically trying to reach you, dude. Where is my goddamn money, you bum? Well, well we... I, 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 I don't... They did not receive the money, you nitwit! They did not receive the money! Her life was in your hands! This is our concern, dude. No, man, nothing is fucked here. Nothing is fucked? No, man. The goddamn plane has crashed into the mountain. Man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light, and... You know, has it ever occurred to you that instead of, uh, you know, running around uh, uh, blaming me, you know, given the nature of all this new shit, you know, it, it, this could be a, a, a lot more... Uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. And, and shit, man. She kidnapped herself. Hasn't that ever occurred to you, man? Sir? No, Mr. Lebowski, it had not occurred to me. That had not occurred to us, dude. Well, okay, you know, you guys aren't privy to all the new shit, so, uh, you know, but, hey, that's what you, uh, that's what you pay me for. <laughs> mm. He's one of my favorites, and the way that he uh, plays off of Huddleston in their scenes together too is yes. is just dynamite in the the kind of second time we go back to pasadena to see the big lebowski after bunny yes. has been quote unquote kidnapped and uh and philip seymour hoffman is kind of explaining that you know he's like inconsolable and he's in in solitude in the in the den and the way that philip seymour hoffman's character like yes yes you know kind of does like the the very theatrical like puts his hand on his forehead and then he opens the doors very theatrically as well. Like, you know, they're kind of in some like Victorian mansion. He, he has this kind of like Renfield quality to him. That's so fucking funny. Uh, uh, that, that I, I just love him. That, that, and that bow he gives and we're only, we hear, uh, we hear it in the background and then it comes to the foreground, uh, Mozart's Requiem in D minor, that famous piece. <laughs> you've heard it and just the, the dramatic way he opens the doors and unveils, uh, the dude to, uh, Huddleston, um, that's also a great scene because Huddleston's given this monologue about, you know, what it means to be in love. And the dude is just like, all right, you mind if I roll up a J? <laughs> and he, he starts smoking in the, the study with him there. It's a bummer, man. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This, uh, this movie is sheer brilliance. But yeah, God. Uh, I, so, yeah, I mentioned... um that the big Lebowski that to do it himself, he uh, often parrots things that he's heard in the opening of the film. Mm -hmm. He's uh, the George W or George H W Bush um, uh, conferences on the television where he talks yep. about Saddam invading Kuwait. He says this aggression will not stand. The dude just kind of hears that puts it in his back pocket later on when he's talking about the soiled rug in the, at the big Lebowski's house, he says this aggression will not stand man. Uh, anytime that the dude hears something, he later kind of co-ops it as his own thinking. And and that's uh, like when he's threatened by the nihilists that they'll cut off his Johnson. Uh, they later go <laughs> confront Larry Sellers and he says, they're going to cut your dick off, Larry. 
like everything that the dude says is not original. He's just <laughs> copying everything that he's heard from previously in the film uh, and then using it as his own, as his own later because he does. Otherwise, he just has nothing else to really say in the situation. He's just throwing things out in the parlance of our times. <laughs> he's a sponge, you know, like I, I love uh, the kind of symmetry of those handful of scenes where he first meets Maud. And Maud is talking about uh, how her work has a distinct vaginal quality and that the word vagina is difficult for men to say. Yet they'll refer to their penises as dicks and Johnsons. And then the fact that Peter Stormare's character refers to Lebowski's penis as his Johnson when they threaten to cut it off later. Uh, and then he goes back to Maud and mentions that he's been uh, approached by these nihilists, in, including uh, Uli. And mm. <laughs> Julianne Moore says, you mean Bunny's companion from the beaver picture? <laughs> and the dude says, you mean vagina? Uh, you know, like just these like kind of back and forth where he's, you know, like you said, just co-opting the language and, and the parlance of our times, which he he says too after, after Maud uses it. Um, but it's also interesting just like the way that this is kind of reflective of like his complacency and his acquiescence to any sort of narratives of the moment. And the film itself is very much driven by, you know, this early 90s political conflict. We haven't mentioned it yet, but the film, even though it's yeah. in 1998, right, is set in 1991 around mm -hmm. uh, the first Gulf War, like right on the eve of, of Saddam. Uh, invading Kuwait and and us finally, you know, kind of uh, kicking off Operation Desert Storm. And yeah. that that phrase, you know, this aggression will not stand is a thing that the dude parrots, but it's something that he also starts to embody as an ideal, right? That like before yeah. that, he was sort of uh, aimless and, and listless in a way that allowed him to just do nothing besides, you know, get baked and, you know, listen to credence and uh and just hang out and so when he is finally kind of accosted when there's this sort of injustice that's you know that befalls him uh it's it's the reason why he kind of starts to spiral out a little bit and uh you know walter as well is being uh, totally informed by this he's much more of kind of a a template of a modern like neoconservative you know and and uh, also has all of these very aggressive and militant perspectives on this idea. You know, uh, he even says about the rug, he says, this is a line in the sand, right? They crossed it. And of course, in like yeah. one of the most famous moments in the movie, uh, when Walter pulls a gun on Smokey, it is for what? It is for him crossing in imaginary line. Yeah. Crossing the line, over the line, market zero. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I love, uh, and I love when they're in the, sitting in the car afterwards. Um, it's funny that not much is made after that infraction with the gun out in the bowling alley, because then they just keep continuing to bowl there. Um, but the dude's talking to Walter out in the car after the smoky incident. We hear the cops roll up in the background. And uh, the dude's like saying, hey, you know, you got to be easy with Smokey, man. He's a pacifist. And uh, Walter says, you know, I dabbled in pacifism once. Not in Nam, of course. <laughs> just, <laughs> just the, the it's just the point of view that he does not comprehend but um yeah like you said this is a very uh like a very tense time and just with uh with american politics and uh, the the kuwait invasion overseas and how 
that was sort of bubbling up with the uh, the haves and the have nots uh, in this world, like the the Big Lebowski, uh, the Huddleston's character. He's uh, he's first uh, confronted by the dude about his rug and the dude says, well, you know, they're looking for you. And he has that great phrase where he says, you know, just because every rug is micturated upon in the city, I have to owe compensation <laughs> to some bum. And so he, he really kind of sees himself in the upper echelon. But then we reveal he's also a phony because he's just getting an allowance from Maud, who's really kind of the only character who's sort of established herself as, a, you know, as a, as a brilliant um, and rich professional but yeah, everyone else is just kind of wearing these masks. Um, but yeah, the the yeah the the setting is not a lot of people get. But uh, and then also we see uh, we sh- we need, we haven't even mentioned gutter balls yet. Um, we see Saddam <laughs> at the the bowling alley in the fantasy. Yeah, and I also think about uh, the line that immediately follows the moment you uh, you referenced about pacifism, where Walter says, "You know, I I, I dabbled in pacifism, of course, not Nam." And then the dude says, what I'm trying to say is, you know, Smokey, he has emotional problems. <laughs> and then Walter says, what, you mean besides pacifism? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like every every line is is perfect like that in this movie. I, I, again, you know, we're going to quote a lot. But uh, it, th- that kind of ideology, that, that sense, I think, just goes further to, you know, kind of codifying Goodman's ideals in the movie, which is just like. He, he sees it as a uh, a point of weakness. He sees it as sort of like a moral failing to have this perspective of, you know, non-aggression and and peace and and all those things. But uh, you, you mentioned the uh, the gutter balls, uh, Jackie Treehorn production in the dream sequence, and I think uh, it's important to reference that as well as the other uh, fun kind of fantasy sequence where the dude is flying around Los Angeles following uh, Maud on the sort of magic flying rug. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are digressions in the movie that I used to not love very much. I, I remember, you know, uh, when I was a, a different kind of movie watcher, one I think more interested in plot mechanics and sort of the elegance of, of film structure, I wasn't ready to receive or to really appreciate just like how much fun those moments are and how kind of creative they are within like the greater schema of the film. Yeah. Uh, but I like them a lot now, it almost sort of as these kind of like brief reprieves where you just get to like not worry so much about trying to keep up with every minor intricacy and nuance of the details of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. I like the first one. We get that, um, that really insane point of view from a bowling ball shot of it spinning down the lane. Uh, that's superb. Um, but yeah, I, I, like you, I said, uh, I would, I would always just kind of watch this film originally and think, Oh, I just want to get back to like the Walter scenes. Like, you know, I, that mm-hmm. was like where the, that was where the good stuff was. So like, you know, these, uh, these bizarre transgressions, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't really into, but yeah, gutter balls is maybe the highlight of the movie for me. Just that, that is such <laughs> a beautifully put together uh, dance number. I love, uh, I, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but the dude is wearing the coveralls that Carl Hungus is wearing in the log jamming video when he's in the gutter yeah. balls fantasy. Um, just some, something else that he saw in his own mind. And then there's also a, a giant pair of scissors on Maud's wall and he sees the, uh, the nihilists in the red chasing him. But yeah, that that whole scene just with the with the Kenny Rogers song kicking in and mm-hmm. 
the little little strut that he does, all the Viking girls lining up and uh, him doing that little shimmy dance down the stairs and the golden bowling shoes. It's just such a, <laughs> a masterfully created scene. And I, I, I love when like a film has a break for like a, a musical number like that. And I think it's it's the best musical number that the Coens have done. And that's, you know, considering Hail Caesar and all their other works. But um, yeah, it's uh, gutter balls is just uh, it's it's just such a, a fantastic highlight in their oeuvre. I agree. And you could just kind of you could extract it from the film. And I, I think it's one of the things that still remains just as satisfying watching it decontextualized from the rest of the movie as just kind of like a little almost yeah. like music video. Right. Um, yeah. and, and it is, you know, for how much this movie is very much within the Cohen's own kind of mode. And also, I, I think, you know, referencing a lot of this, uh, you know, kind of Altman era of 70s, more cynical kind of like new Hollywood cinema. This is the moment where like the Busby Berkeley kind of like shit crashes into it. Right. And there's this sort yeah. of uh, this whole lineage of like Hollywood and, and you know, kind of great movie making that sort of crashes into itself within the Coen's uh, work here. And and you get this like beautiful musical number. It's very funny. The, the moment where the dude is sort of gliding, uh, you know, a few inches above the ground underneath the, between the legs of all of the dancers and then, you know, flips onto his back so that he can, peer up all their skirts and we just see him grinning (laughs) they uh i think he said in an interview i believe it was on conan um where uh he said that the the girls in that scene they were wearing these like big bushy wigs between their legs so every time he passed underneath them he just saw an enormous mound of what looked like pubic hair (laughs) which just got bigger and bigger as he went down the row um, but yeah no that's uh the, the yeah the way he rotates that's that's uh it's just such a like, like I didn't watch the film twice, but I did rewatch a lot of clips, and I think I rewent went back to Gutter Balls several times. It's just so good. There's so many great details in it, and also, you know, that that first dream sequence that you mentioned with the cool POV shot where the mm-hmm. dude gets like kind of stuck in the bowling ball. Uh, was reading that that was done practically. I guess they had uh, the camera both on what was sort of like a, a spit that they could rotate as well as a dolly track and kind of ran it down the bowling uh, alley, down the lane, while yeah. also kind of flipping it circularly like that. And when you watch it, you you realize it's being done practically. And it's just one of those kind of like ingenious moments where you're like, this doesn't, this doesn't need to be this clever. Uh, but yeah. from a visual standpoint, it's, it's just as fulfilling as, as everything else is in the movie. We should mention this was this movie was shot by Roger Deakins. Um, Absolutely. He, lately, he's you know he's kind of been uh, relegated to just the, like the blockbusters of like Blade Runner and uh, did he do Dune? Uh, I think I think he he did Dune. Uh, as I believe well. he's he's behind Dune. Yeah. Yeah, in nineteen seventeen and all these big films, but um, this film is gorgeous. Uh, just the way he captures the bowling alley, uh, the I love the the light up starbursts on the exterior when the scene fades out and those still linger in the dark. Um, this is a yeah, this is a very handsome looking movie, but it's one that's it doesn't really um, announce itself or it's not very showy. It's it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's very um, it's I guess grounded in, in how good it looks for me pulling a lack of a better term out of my head right now. But yeah, Deacons shoots the hell out of this. Yeah. I'm always really taken with uh, Deacons movies that are uh, a little less showy, you know, kind of like what I'd almost call like unfussy. And and this movie has yeah. so many cool little techniques and tricks in it, you know, like the, the gutter ball sequence, like slowly dissolving and transitioning to the dude 
running uh, kind of on the highway after being drugged and the headlights sort of swarming him, which is beautiful. But for mm-hmm. a lot of this movie, yeah, like we're, we're dealing with sort of the the unremarkable and, and non-beautiful parts of Los Angeles. And they're all being shot just immaculately. I, I, it calls to mind, I think, a lot of the work that Deacons did with uh, David Mamet on Homicide from 1991, which great is a uh, great, great, great movie. But, um, you know, a, a different kind of film, certainly a different kind of like tonal aesthetic but mm-hmm. also one that I think of as looking great without ever being showy, it, it, without ever, you know, kind of having any sort of fussiness to it that announces itself as being lensed as expertly as it is. Yeah, I, a great way to describe it, it would just be unremarkable. But I mean that in like the kindest, uh, the kindest way possible, because, you know, like you compare it, stack this up to like Blade Runner 2049 and you have like a purple hued Ryan Gosling next to a giant holographic woman in the rain. <laughs> you know, that's obviously a different, uh, different tempo, but yeah, this, uh, everything just, uh, even just the, the montage of the opening credits of just how it uh, really shows off the bowling alley and everybody inside of it. It's like it, there's a great lived in quality to that. And I think De- Deacons really works well with carrying out the Cohen's vision. Yeah, people get mad at me for, you know, dogging on uh, Villeneuve on the internet a lot. But uh, I, I, you know, have have my opinions on him. People who, who follow the show know them already. Uh, but I, I do think he, he often becomes overly reliant on the kind of like showstopper, cool uh, compositions that Deacons is capable of. And I think it's the mark of a really talented filmmaker uh, when you can utilize Deacons for something that has texture to it rather yeah. than something that looks kind of like you know would, would look neat uh i don't know in like a four panel twitter post or as like a, a a laptop background or something like that and and the cohen's often achieve that with their work yeah yeah um my notes are just full of uh, walter lines and there's one else i wanted to touch on um <laughs> where uh, after he's confronted by, by the nihilists for the first time uh there's sort of a disappointment uh when walter learning that they're dealing with nihilists and not nazis and yes. uh, the line he says, uh, say what you will about the tenets of national socialism. At least it's an ethos like he would much prefer to be going after like the worst <laughs> of humanity than just a bunch of <laughs> he calls them cowards at the end of the film. Like, uh, no, Donnie, these men are cowards. There's nothing to be afraid of. Just the the like just the like the whole kidnapping plot itself, like Walter is ultimately disappointed by because he's he's like, oh, it's obvious she kidnapped herself and. But like on the dude's end, the risks keep elevating. He's like, no, Walter, I got a toe. And Walter's like, I can get you a toe today by three o'clock with nail polish. <laughs> there's, he just keeps seeing through the bullshit. And it's it's really like ultimately it's deflating for him. But yeah, it's uh, just another look into his crazy psyche. We should we should also mention based on real having been based on real people. Walter is like a dead ringer for John Milius's uh, IMDb yep. photo. If you've never seen that, take a look and uh, compare the two. <laughs> Correct. And for, for those who are not familiar, I think we've talked about uh, the, the wonderful John Milius on the show before, but conservative filmmaker, you know, one that uh, is is maybe like one of the, the handful of what I would consider like uh, very politically conservative, like auteurs who, who makes films that I think often uh, elevate above any sort of like political ideology that the film itself may hold or that the director may hold. I think of David Mamet as that often as well. Um, mm. You know, despite a, a lot of his unfortunate opinions and uh, things that he's been very verbal about and in, in especially the Trump years. Um, 
Yeah. But yeah, he, he looks just like him. He's apparently very much inspired by him along with a couple of other folks. But, uh, you know, just sort of his his love of guns, his kind of like militancy, his aggression is all there. Uh, and I, I love that that line that you're talking about with with the nihilist. It's it's something that's kind of echoed uh, or, or is an echo of an earlier conversation uh, when the dude is at the Big Lebowski's uh, huge mansion and meets mm-hmm. Bunny for the first time, who we haven't mentioned is played by uh, Tara Reid, who I, yes. I, I think you know does not get a lot of time in the movie, but does a lot with a little. Um, I read that at, at one point in time, they were briefly considering that uh, to be Charlize. Uh, and I don't oh, know wow. that it would work as well in terms of the way that it's aged. Uh, I, I think that Tara Reid does a, a, something with it that is like, she kind of embodies and leans into a, a, a kind of like a bimbo persona that's really yeah. effective in the movie. It's a yeah, it's a perfectly like bubbly performance, uh, you could say. Just she she nails it just in that small bit. Again, she's only in like two scenes, really, uh, log jamming notwithstanding. But um, yeah, no, that uh, yeah, she's quite good in the film. Yeah. So when she's talking with the dude, you know, he uh, she asked him to blow on her toes because uh, she's just painted them with this green nail polish, which will be the signifier later on that makes the dude think that he's handling one of her uh, little piggies uh, in, in some gauze. But uh, he he asked, you know, you, you don't think he'll mind pointing to Peter Stormar drunk and passed out in the, the pool. And she says, Uli doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. And uh, the dude's response is, oh, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> and they're they're all just like so confounded by this uh by this ideology or or lack thereof right this this sort of idea of of caring about nothing of of utilizing sort of this kind of like lack of a belief in a cause and effect in the universe to justify you know an aimlessness but also like a criminality eventually ultimately too yeah or they're uh, when they finally confront them in the, the final showdown and they complain about not getting the money and it not being fair. And that dude says, fair? Who's the fucking nihilist here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very it's very intelligent, super smart about it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love those scenes. And I think, you know, talking a little bit about these competing sort of ideologies is is an interesting place to go in, in sort of setting up uh a deeper read of the movie because there's a lot going on here, but I think that there is, as I mentioned before, something thematically happening that is uh, operating on a much sort of like deeper level than, uh, than some people may give this movie credit for. Yeah. And of course, you know, we, we already talked about sort of the, the sociopolitical environment of the film as being one uh, that's, that's taking place during this period of kind of like unrest and, and, you know, a military operation that's occurring in the early part of the 90s here. Really, this is, you know, kind of on the the eve of the end of history here. You know, the, the Cold War is sort of subsiding. We're uh, no longer being confronted by a formidable foe, or at least insofar as we think. Even Walter says so at the end of the movie that, you know, he he had respect for his for the combatants uh in in vietnam that charlie was like you know was was a worthy adversary yeah and that pajamas exactly and that this new uh confrontation is one that as he says should be a cakewalk because they're they're dealing with i think his words are are fig eaters learning how to uh pull reverse in a soviet tank or something like that um so there's not a lot of respect for this new kind of environment but there's also 
a, a kind of confusion, a sort of like almost paranoia around it about this uh, inability to like articulate and perfectly define their enemy, like the good guy and the bad guy and, and someone that they can fight as a foe. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, no, that's really well put. And also just looking back to the, the era that the Coen brothers were working on this screenplay, you know, obviously this is released in 1998 and shot, you know, within that prior year, but written in the early nineties around the time that uh, Barton Fink was being made in 91, you know, as we end the cold war and, and go into this, yeah, this, uh, this unknown, as you will, with also the new decade, like what's what's going to happen. And there's also there's all all of these like just with everything kind of simmering to a boil and everyone was also harboring these uh these like post Vietnam uh, like PTSD, especially with Walter. And and uh, yeah, everyone is uh, it, it's, you know, everyone is on edge and it's not, you know, made any better by the dude getting his rug stolen because every time he meets someone like they're all hostile to him and like he you know the the police are you know they are and still are fascists you know they 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 answer to the rich and keep kick the bums out of the city absolutely and you know the 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 movie further kind of investigates all of these different kind of ideas and, and this sort of like generational fatigue that all of these characters are feeling where uh we you know i think in the kind of foil of the two lebowskis you've got the dude mm-hmm who is uh, like an ex-hippie, right? They, they mentioned that he uh, was a member of the Seattle 7. They mentioned that he was one of the original kind of drafters of the Port Huron Statement, the first one, not the compromised <laughs> second draft. He, he's, he's clear to mention. Um, yeah. You know, he also kind of references like, uh, what was it, like uh, occupying like ROTC offices and stuff like that. Just, you know, like, like being this kind of like very active uh, militant sort of leftist of, the sixties and, and that generation kind of subsiding. And now he's this burnout character. Um, and then of course the, the other Lebowski, Jeffrey Lebowski is someone who has kind of embodied the perspective of like the bootstrapism of the Reagan and Bush years, you know, this like mm-hmm. making something of himself and, you know, not feeling like a victim, not feeling sorry for himself, despite, you know, lacking the use of his legs, he says, um, but as you mentioned earlier, Jake, like we find out he's a fraud, right? Like he yep. is he is just as much a benefactor of like chance and circumstance and luck as anyone else in the movie. He gets an allowance because his wife was rich and he's not the one who controls the money. It's it's Maud who has all of it. And she has re-embraced this sort of like pseudo bohemian kind of like artist lifestyle where she gets to just, you know, be kind of a, a, a quirky gal and, you know, make vaginal art um all while running (laughs) all of these foundations with you know millions upon millions of dollars i guess what i'm getting at you know this is all kind of like uh like messy but i find that the film seems to be almost kind of like taking some shots at that like new left of the 1960s and the way that they have subsided and the way that their idealism has sort of transitioned into maybe not like a, a reactionary quality, but at least one that is uh, complicit and subservient to the more kind of conservative and reactionary attitudes of the era. And you see that embodied in the relationship, I think, between the dude and Walter, where, you know, they are often sort of at odds with one another. There's often sort of kind of like a tempestuous quality to to their relationship. But ultimately, uh, the dude is is 
relatively compliant. And a lot of the trouble they get in is because he's unwilling to kind of like put a foot down whenever Walter wants to uh, try something new and exacerbate a situation and and yeah. get more aggressive and, and take more chances. Yeah, no, that's something I was thinking about the whole film is like, why are these two guys friends? You know, Walter yeah. seems to do more harm than good in the dude's life. And but yeah, like when he's nailing in the the two by four, he's talking to him on the phone and he's like, you just like saying, I want to be left alone. I'm literally going to barricade myself in my house. And he's like, just fuck you. Leave me the fuck alone, man. And then he kind of is like, yeah, I'll see you at practice. So they still have their, they still, you know, obviously they're going to still go through with their like the bowling in the tournament. And yeah, like you said, the dude is kind of just subservient to the uh, the behemoth that is Walter Subchak. Like, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they're. They're best friends, but uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a very lopsided uh, friendship, I guess you could say. Yeah, and you know, I think it uh, it leads into a conversation about one of the I'll call him a character uh, that that we haven't really discussed much yet, which is mm. uh, what I've kind of idly been calling the cosmic cowboy, uh, played by Sam Elliott in the movie, who is. Uh, our narrator for the film, he opens mm-hmm. the movie by doing kind of like the scene setting. He introduces the dude. Uh, he's he's pulled out of the kind of like non-diegetic uh, relationship to the the film and becomes a character in it. He's sitting at the bar at the midpoint of the movie. Yeah. And then he's there again uh, at the very end to remind us that, uh, that the dude abides and that uh, he takes comfort in this idea that the dude abides. You got a good sarsaparilla. Sioux City sarsaparilla? Yeah, it's a good one. How you doing there, dude? Not too good, man. One of those days, huh? Yeah. Well, a wiser fellow than myself once said, sometimes you eat the bar and much obliged. Sometimes the bar while he eats you. Mm. That's some kind of Eastern thing? Far from it. I like your style, dude. Mm, well, I dig your style too, man. Got a whole cowboy thing going. Just one thing, dude. What's that? You have to use so many cuss words. The fuck are you talking about? What do you make of this character and his relationship? Like what 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 is this character to you, Jake? Yeah, so God, the straight put, put me on the spot here, man. Um <laughs> the uh I, I've got I've got no. some ideas, but I wanna I wanna hear just maybe like what what your thoughts are on him because he's he's an interesting addition here that uh yeah feels superfluous, but I, I think offers a little bit of of further kind of support for for maybe my reading of the film. Yeah, again, I, I think Cosmic Cowboy, I think is a perfect way to sum him up. Um, also, just a side note, I'm wondering if uh, David Lynch was a fan of this film before he made uh, the Mulholland Drive. <laughs> um, but uh, regardless, I, he acts as the narrator, but also I think in some sense he's kind of like uh, the dude's consciousness and uh, how 
like that, you know, kind of like the dude evaluating the situation that he's in, like the stranger stops us right in the middle of the film and kind of evaluates everything that's going on. But then, of course, he's also a real guy. He's ordering sarsaparillas at the bar. Um, but yeah, I think he's, uh, yeah, just sort of, and again, it's also like just was sort of the, the magical realism that the Coens have had in their previous films. It's all, like just a character that is omniscient, um, but also appears to be organic and flesh. And he, he, he doesn't disrupt the uh, flow of the film, but he does also comment on it and offer, you know, some guidance to the dude, even if he's not always happy with uh, his use of profanity in his slacker ways. But uh, what do you what are your <laughs> thoughts here? Yeah, so I, I have a take on this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna preface this by saying that I I do not necessarily uh, think, and I, I would never try to maintain the idea that my perspective or read on this is one that is uh, deliberately uh, intended by the Coens and and their screenwriting here. We've we've you know talked about some of their movies in the past. I think that there's a very interesting kind of edge to. Barton Fink that also has this kind of critical lens on uh, a particular type of like urban uh, like leftist progressive and uh, sort of yeah. their detachment and and their inability to really reckon with and see the world for what it is and and recognize like real working people within it. It's kind of you know the the impetus for that that big standoff and shootout in the hotel uh, at the end of the movie with Goodman, mm. but. To me, this cowboy character uh, is not meant to be taken necessarily at face value as sort of like an audience surrogate and like a, a, a sort of like moral center of the story. I think that the movie is actually uh, a little bit more kind of cynical uh, than than some people might see it. The cowboy is to me, I mean, you know, what what is he? He kind of represents this sort of like icon of... American idealism of, of sort of the American project, right? And, and he's decontextualized within the movie. He's removed mm -hmm. from an environment in which he makes sense. But when we think about kind of like westward expansion and sort of like the foundations of the country, uh, the cowboy, you know, rings in there as, as one of those sort of very important totems, uh, visions of, of that kind of project. And that project is one that is uh, is bloody. It's it's messy. It's one that that uh, you know trampled a lot of people. And if we think about that within the context of the situation with the Gulf War, uh, yet again we're seeing kind of these vestiges of this American imperial project growing and and moving into new environments uh, where we are. You know, getting involved in this conflict, we are becoming America's police. We are, uh, you know, fighting uh, abroad and and sending people to die in order to maintain American superiority. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait, let me let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a, what day is this? Well, I do work, sir. 
So if you don't mind. No, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. Then we've got the dude who, as we already mentioned, is sort of this leftist character who has totally subsided, totally lost some of his idealism and has fallen into kind of an apathy. He doesn't want he doesn't want to argue anymore. He doesn't want to fight anymore. He just wants to chill out. He just wants to abide. And we see that he is easily coerced and manipulated by uh, more militant and aggressive conservative ideologies, whether those are being fed to him through the media or whether they're being fed to him through uh, his peers like Walter. And so at the end of the movie, we essentially have like a sacrificial lamb. We have the death of an innocent, right? Donnie is uh, like, you know, for all intents and purposes, just like the common man. And his death is the result of this aggression and and this sort of like uh, desire and this need to sort of militantly address this nihilism and this like ideology and this this uh, kind of criminality in the world as we see it. So at the end of the movie, when Sam Elliott tells us that he takes comfort in the idea that the dude abides, that the the dude simply will go with the punches, that no matter what happens, no matter how many friends he loses, no matter how many insane plots and and these mechanisms of the world come into his face and into his orbit, he's just going to like let it happen to him. I, I see that as kind of ringing darker than the movie sort of, uh, you know, presents it and, and, and that it's almost kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's cheery, but in a sort of like kind of blackly funny way that like me as a representative of this American project, I take solace in knowing that the people who, you know, perceive that they have some sort of ideals, perceive that they have some sort of like moral obligation uh, are just going to let things fly. It's just going to happen the way it's going to happen anyway. That's really that's a very interesting. That's I gotta applaud you off mic. About, that's a no. That was really well set put. And then also just to to build on that, um, because the dude the dude's famous phrase, the dude abides. That's he hears that expression from the Big Lebowski in the uh, the limo. He says, "I will not abide mm-hmm. another toe." And that's when they first see the toe with the green nail polish. So you could add not only is it like the dude is. Like, you know, he's just going to let all this happen, but also he's going to be told that it's okay because like he's not he's not, you know, think of that himself. That's just something that he he was he had heard earlier and he's kind of adapting it as his life. It's like, oh, well, you don't abide the dude abides and then that's he's going to carry on. But um, yeah, I like to think that the film ends on a a more hopeful note. I know it's sad that uh, Donnie (laughs) Donnie dies, of course, is, you know, but uh yeah, no, I think uh, I think there's a, a touch more optimism here than uh, many of the other Coen Brothers films. Yeah, and you know, I, I say that as like a reading of the movie, and and it's one that like you know I, I I can hold while also seeing that there are you know clues in the text and the way the film is actually presented that uh, would would I think very much disagree with me and and very much uh, lend themselves to a different interpretation. There's a, a lot of reward in that ending. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's absolutely hysterical when Walter's giving the eulogy, which turns into you know like a that turns into you know sort of like a eulogy for uh, all, all the the boys who died in Vietnam as well. 
Uh, and then when the ashes go straight into the dude's face, but the moment right afterward is one that like is genuinely touching in a movie that otherwise is kind of like emotionally distant. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, he kind of freaks out on Walter and then they, you know, kind of pause as the wind blows around them and they hug and they, they embrace for a moment. And, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think it's very moving. Like I said, in a movie that otherwise, like I have a hard time latching into on that level. Yeah, no, that's a incredibly tender ending. And then they, you know, they sum it up with what they say throughout the movie is fuck it, dude, let's go bowling. You know, let's uh, just roll our <laughs> woes away down the lanes and uh, go to what's familiar and what where, where we can where we can just be and have a have a good time while this uh, awful world exists outside of us. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 again, like I do really like that ending too. I, I, I like to believe that maybe the, the reading that I just put forth is one that is like incidental, um, because I do also, you know, see the merit. I think in that perspective and that kind of philosophy of just, uh, you know, fuck it, yeah. let's let's go bowling. And uh, clearly, a lot of other people do too, because I, I guess we should talk a little bit about kind of the legacy of this movie um, mm. and, and the fact that it's. I think the only Coen Brothers movie that has spawned an entire religion. Jake, what do you, what do you know about dudeism? I mean, I think dudeism, the tenets of which uh, I'm not a hundred percent knowledgeable about, but I believe it's just sort of, you know, it just kind of, kind of taking life as it comes and uh, living life through the, uh, the almost aimless ways of the dude and uh, just trying to relax and have a good time. That's my, that's my understanding. I haven't really done much reading on the dudist movement. What about you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm also relatively unfamiliar. I didn't I didn't look too far into it, but you know this this movie uh, is one that has uh, you know we are maybe a little bit too used with the term cult classic these days, but this is one that I think actually warrants being referred to as one that that gathered a cult following. It was not particularly yes. successful upon the time of its release, uh, and it was also received fairly middlingly by by critics mm-hmm. as well. I, I think it was kind of misunderstood and i think that also you know a lot like with something like burn after reading coming on the heels of such a market success and such a profound kind of like cinematic moment like fargo it's more unwieldy it's one that maybe people had a a harder time grasping onto and and seeing uh just how special it is but uh you know in the time since that that has passed people have come to it uh there's there's a whole like lebowski convention circuit yeah that that goes around i guess that uh you know people like like bridges and julianne moore have attended in the past um but yeah in terms of the tenets of of dudism i i have to imagine that a lot of them are just kind of what we see about the the idleness and and the kind of like chill mentality of the dude just abiding and bowling and you know having a couple oat sodas with your buddies yeah, just dressing in comfort, not worrying about the world, having a lighting one up, having a good time. That's uh, that sounds like that's really all it is to me. I don't think it's something that's uh, you know, uh, practiced. Uh, like <laughs> it, it's not something that just sounds like it's very. It's a very uh, hard religion. You know, it's just like ah, dudeism. You know, <laughs> it's, you like the movie, you want to have a good time, be a dudist. I guess. I mean, it would be interesting to see if you know. Uh... Somewhere in the future here, Tom Cruise ends up leaving uh, the Church of Scientology and, you know, in in the absence of of some sort of, uh, you know, ideology or or dogma, he finds his way to dudism. That would be a cool kind of chapter in his career, I feel like. 
yeah, you know, we could uh, we could we could welcome him back to the world uh, if uh, if he becomes a dudist. You know, I have, I don't I don't think he'll ever leave Scientology, but uh, you know, if he does, dudist is one hundred percent the way to go. And I'm sure the dudists uh, will welcome him with open arms. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I can commend, and I can certainly see the reward in in the perspective of of kind of idleness of being, you know, sort of almost what would I call it? Radically lazy, like this movie. And, you know, I, I think that it is something that the movie is also kind of uh, dabbling in and, and has its sights set on, which is that there are a lot of kind of foils to this idea of what the dude embodies, you know, this sort of kind of uh, laissez-faire attitude, but also mm-hmm. the the political activism in the 60s and, and all of that being kind of uh, antagonistic to the big Lebowski's ideals. But the nihilists represent, you know, like an sort of alternative route to that kind of like aimlessness, right? That it has kind yeah. of uh, calloused over into something that is not just uh, not just passive, but almost kind of like malicious. Mm-hmm. And they use it as a way to, you know, almost kind of defend and define them being criminals and, and, you know, them cutting off Amy Mann's toe and all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. We should mention Amy Mann is the, uh, the sister of the nihilists or I don't know what her connection is, but, uh, yeah, they, uh, they use her toe and not bunny's toe, but yeah, that's, uh, that's a, you know, that's a very well put like, you know, the, if, if the dude were to sort of drift out too far, that could be the path he would take. And so, I think it's also I think also just why the end of the film is so optimistic is that they literally defeat nihilism outside of their bowling alley. You know, they uh, they they <laughs> they throw down, they fight, they cut, they overcome on top and they they, you know, try to have a positive outlook, even though it's unfortunate again to lose Donnie. But um, at the end of the day, you know, they're they're better than those uh, those cowards. And, you know, I also just love the kind of like back and forth between him and the dude where, you know, they're the the nihilists sort of say like just give us the money that you have in your pockets and we'll call it even and the dude is like great we 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 come out like still on top here like this this is a very cheap way to end this whole affair uh but of course walter's having none of it you know what's mine is mine he says and and he gets very uh aggressive about it and yeah yeah i mean they they are to true to themselves to the the very end of the film they really have no sort of like, you know, revelations or, or really dynamic character shifts. Uh, and it's still rewarding at the end of things, you know, like so much happens and yet uh, to our characters, practically nothing has happened. Yeah, no, like I said, this is just a, a one blip in a man's life. It, uh, you know, it started with a soiled rug and uh, spun out of control from there, ended with a bloody showdown in a parking lot. But uh, I, I like, I do like in that fight when, uh, while, Walter is chewing off Peter Stormare's ear. Uh, the dude's like fighting <laughs> off the tall guy. And he's like, I got just take the $4. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. He's, he's just he's trying to get him on his way. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, no, it's great. I mean, it's a terrific movie. I, I feel like, you know, there's there's so much even now that uh, in our time together, we, we haven't touched upon. Jake, are, are there moments in the movie that you have uh, made note of that we've missed at this point? Um, going back just uh, real quick to the, uh, I have two, I think I, in the mortuary scene, um, I think the best use of, uh, John Goodman's bellowing is, uh, the, that God damn it 
that he gives uh, in the <laughs> is very full threaded, throated and glorious. But also in the scene where he's smashing up the Corvette and it turns out to be like the Corvette is owned by a neighbor and he didn't know the guy takes the crowbar and Walter, who has been this like very like vicious gun toting right wing psychopath the whole movie th- tries throwing a peace sign to the guy when the guy's swinging the crowbar back at him and <laughs> especially after he shunned pacifism and he, he like like when push comes to shove like Walter's not exactly ready to throw down when he's in the wrong. Um, yeah. But yeah, those are just two little, <laughs> two little more Walter moments I have. You could do this whole podcast on Walter Sobchak, and it would be just as gratifying. Yeah, I mean the Big Lebowski Walter compilation part one of two uh, is you know going to be watched <laughs> probably three or four more times by me on YouTube after this. Uh, one of the other characters that we didn't mention um, is Knox Harrington, played by the great yes. David Thewlis uh, in <laughs> Maud Studio. I, I, I read an anecdote that his existence in the movie is purely because the Coens felt that that scene was too expository, that they were like getting fed up with the fact that it was just like too much plot being leveled and, and spoken between uh, the dude and Maude and they yeah. needed something else to like add into it. And it's such a, such a funny, like creative little addition. And especially to get, you know, someone, I don't know, with the cachet of, of David Thewlis, you know, this is after uh, Naked and everything too. Like he's an incredible actor just to get him there, like in a bald cap, reading a magazine and giggling uncontrollably is uh, is inspired. Yeah, again, just one of those one scene performances that like you, it stands out and you just remember it because the cones are so good at crafting such a thing. Um, I, I did remember just a few other funny details is when um, when the dude's car gets stolen, he's dealing with the police uh, they're interviewing him on the chair in his uh, house, and uh, he takes a moment, like mid uh, conversation, to recline the uh, the chair that he's in, which is a great touch. But I love when he, after he mentions the car was stolen, he says that uh, his rug was also stolen. And one of the cops <laughs> asks, "It was the rug in the car?" And he goes, "No, no, it was stolen from here." And the cop kind of perks up and goes, "Like oh, separate incidents." And then Maud <laughs> yes. leaves the voicemail. <laughs> saying i'm the one who stole your rug and that same cop kind of cheerfully goes well i guess we can close the book on that one (laughs) yeah i that was a line that had never really registered for me on previous watches but on this one had me laughing out loud when he kind of perks up and separate incidents which is (laughs) exciting uh (laughs) and right before that too yeah oh no go ahead i wouldn't hold out hope for the uh the tape deck or the credence (laughs) (laughs) and you know right before that when he's like you know oh i I have this briefcase what's in the briefcase just some business papers what do you do and he goes i'm unemployed (laughs) like he's immediately caught in in this kind of uh, lie um i I also love when he uh, has finally recovered the stolen vehicle and there's the uh the cop who returns it to him and he's like like, do, do you still have people on this? Are you following any leads? And it's like this, you know, kind of like giggly Latino guy who's just like, yeah, leads. We've got we got four detectives working on it in shifts. <laughs> I also like the detail when he's trying to get it. He says, you have to get it on the other side. Like they had broken his door and sealed it shut. Yeah. Yeah. And they already knew about it. They assumed that, you know, someone had slept in it or something. And uh, they're like, oh, no, we've, we've done a full survey of it. There's nothing in there, but uh, you, you got to get in on the other end now. Yeah. Like uh, some some vagrant probably used it as a bathroom and then just kept going. 
<laughs> yeah, so many, uh, so many just great indelible moments that like pop out from from this film. I I don't know if I asked or if you've mentioned it ever, but do you have a a favorite or a a, a best pick for best Coen Brothers film? Oh my gosh, uh, this is a really hard one. You know, I I may have to be kind of boring here and argue that I, I do think No Country for Old Men is maybe my favorite of all of their movies. I think it's just, it's just really perfect. Um, yeah. I, I love that one. I no, I do too. I saw it twice in theaters when it came out. I I'm a, I'm a huge fan as well. I, yeah, that one is just aces all around. Um, like if I had to pick a best, like I was thinking about this all morning and my heart kept telling me to go with Miller's crossing as their best film. Hmm. Um, but I feel like with with the Coen brothers, just what makes them why they're also so great is that I, this answer can just change for me daily. It's like you can have yeah. also a, a favorite or a different best pick for a Robert Altman film because they've made just so many good ones. Like I even have a few like Hudsucker Proxy and The Man Who Wasn't There are even like two dark horse picks that I would say are amongst their best for me. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just such a strong and incredible body of work. And I, uh, you know, I'm kind of sad that they've split apart now, but, uh, hopefully, uh, they come back together in some fashion. You know, I, I had heard musings that they, uh, they might be on their way back together for, for a team up after, uh, after Macbeth and forgive Mm -hmm. me, I totally forgot the name of, uh, of Ethan's movie that's coming out with, uh, Margaret Qualley in it but, oh uh, uh drive away dolls drive away yeah. dolls that's it I, I was not thrilled with the trailer i i think i remarked at the time that i was kind of shocked at how much uh ethan without joel just kind of plays out like a stephen freer's movie which is you know not a yeah. dig at stephen freer's i think he's fine but sort of you know maybe not at the level of the cohen's when they're working together yeah it's it's stri- strange. The trailer itself, it looked like warmed over Coen Brothers. Like they they really need each other to work. And then I saw Macbeth, and like I thought that was just sort of a a fabulous presentation of like an an elegant student film. Like there's nothing really challenging in that movie. It's just all it's it's handsomely made. Everyone's you know, good in it, but there was nothing. I didn't. I had no excitement watching it. I wasn't you know watching. Macbeth by Joel Cohen. I was just watching a, a handsome adaptation of a, of, of a, you know, work that's been covered many other times before. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny to see the way that, you know, so many of the idiosyncrasies of their movies map mm-hmm. perfectly onto each of them as independent creators, where you can see that a little bit, maybe more of the kind of literary and, um, I don't even know what to call it, sort of like moribund qualities to of, of their films come maybe from Joel's mind and that yeah. a little bit more of that kind of like pulpy, uh, like, you know, dime store novel crime fiction kind of beat that they're on sometimes is, is pulled from Ethan's sensibilities a little bit more. But the two of them together make something brilliant um, and, and yeah. apart. Yeah, it's just it's uh, diminishing returns. So we, we got to get the gang back together. Yeah, we we do. We gotta. We need some good Coens in our life, you know. I I remember when a uh, a new Coen Brothers film was like a treat. That would be something you would look forward to, and now it's like, oh, I'm I'm just thinking about the days of past. And it's been a little while. It, you know, I, I was yeah. reflecting on it recently, and it's I I, I did realize, like, man, it's been. It's been years now, years and years since we've gotten to, you know, be really excited for a Coen Brothers joint. Um, but I'm hoping 
you know, they get back together. I'm hoping that we see something in the near future and, uh, you know, that they still have the juice. I'm sure they do. They're smart, capable filmmakers, and I'm, I'm excited for their their next chapter post-reunion. Yeah, no, it'll be uh, it'll be something to behold once or if it ever happens. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to remain optimistic. I will as well. And in the meantime, I will just watch The Big Lebowski 10 more times, um, yeah. as I'm sure you will as well, Jake. And uh, yeah. it's a fantastic feature. Again, if you have not seen it, I can't believe you've made it this far in the episode. Uh, <laughs> but go watch it uh, in haste uh, and uh, join join the mob of people who endlessly quote this movie and love it as much as we do. Uh, and thank you, Jake, for suggesting it and hanging out with me for a little bit today to talk about it. Oh, I, Aaron, it was my pleasure and my privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I, I look forward to uh, future endeavors together. We will absolutely have you back. Uh, it's been such a treat. And uh, you name the time and place and, and we'll be there. But uh, Jake, where can uh, people find you and your work around the Internet? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm at Jake Tropila. J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A on all uh, social medias. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky. Uh, you can follow my work on uh, filminquiry.com. I do some writing there. And then also I am uh, a podcaster at Optimism Vaccine. Uh, we actually have a Patreon we've launched. Uh, so patreon.com slash Optimism Vaccine. If you want to donate a few dollars, you can control what we watch next. Uh, we had somebody pay just to have us watch all four Crocodile Dundee movies. And uh, let me tell you, that was <laughs> not a good time. But uh, hey, you got you got a better idea. We'd love to hear it. And uh, also, I do a podcast on Film Inquiry with uh, our editor in chief, uh, Christy Strauss. It's called Blind Spots. It's where we each uh, pick a, a film the other person has not seen, and we watch both and discuss. Uh, have a lot of interesting parallels and conversations with those. Um, but yeah, uh, hit me up. I'm around. From our end of things, uh, you can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. That's on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, both the hosts of our show are on Blue Sky at the moment. I'm Notorious Lightning. Carly has maintained her Deep Impact Crier uh, handle. The show will be on there at some point in the future. I just have not uh, found the justification to make uh, a Hit Factory profile yet on Blue Sky, but uh, forthcoming. It will, it will certainly happen eventually as Twitter continues to die its slow death. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod where we have bi-weekly bonus episodes, uh, premium content for our subscribers there. Uh, and you also get invited to our Discord, where uh, things are heating up. We've got a lot of friends in there talking about movies, music, 90s stuff all the time. Um, so a lot of fun being in there and chatting with uh, the hosts and friends of the show. Uh, I'll give a shout out to our overlords. They are Linda, Jesse K., Jared Murray. Thank you for your continued support. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. See ya. I woke up this morning with the sun down shining in I found my mind in a brown paper bag But then I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I tore my mind on a jagged sky I just dropped in See what condition my condition was in I said I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in